And, of course, the other bad thing Ooh, that can yeah. happen on the board is the dragons. Oh, yeah. And um, they can come up from fate cards or they can come up from players <laughs> as well. Did any players um, <laughs> yeah. summon a dragon? Well, that would be a terrible thing for a player to do, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? Play- <laughs> hmm, oh, who would do that? I'm Elizabeth Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month we're not doing that. Instead, we're playing the board game Guards Guards, or as it felt more while we were playing it, Escape the Luggage. <laughs> and our guest is academic and board game nerd, Dr. Melissa Rogerson. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. It's lovely to have you back on the show. Lovely to be back. And it's our first time playing board game together because I wasn't on the last one. That's true. Last time we played Thud with just the two of us because it is only a two-player game. (laughs) So that made sense at the time. But now we're all here together to discuss this other board game, Guards Guards, or to use its complete name, Guards Guards, a Discworld board game. (laughs) That's its official name? Well, look, most of the Discworld board games have some sort of subtitle that's like a Discworld game or a Discworld board game. But, it's real SEO energy. Mm, but mostly, I mean, it's hard to tell how, who decides what the official name of the game is. Me. Oh, well, what is it called then? Escape the Luggage. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't feel like that. Yes. I mean, it's been a while since we saw you last. Have you been up to anything exciting since then? Oh, look, always up to exciting things, Ben, but... Uh, Maybe not quite as exciting as spending nearly four hours running away yeah. from the luggage. <laughs> yeah, it was. It is quite a long game. I mean, it says, I mean, you can never, the, one of the first things you learn if you play a lot of board games is never trust the estimated playing time on the box. And I think this one says 120 minutes. Oh, really? So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we are not the only people who've taken four hours. Uh, one of our regular listeners informed us that it usually takes them about four hours to play. And we only had three players, so I don't want to think about how long it would take with six people. Yeah. yeah. I reckon we'd be faster next time, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now we know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe we should read. We usually read the blurb, but mm. it's actually quite a long introduction for the premise. Mm. I won't read it all, but let's read the start mm-hmm. of it, shall we, to get ourselves kicked off. In the heart of this wondrous metropolis, Ankh-Morpork, which was introduced in a bit I'm not reading, stands the Unseen University. In the heart of the Unseen University stands the library, and in the heart of the library stands an ape, although, like most orangutans, its posture leaves a lot to be desired. Rude. Currently, however, the curvature of his spine is the least of the librarian's problems. The greatest treasure housed within the stark, aged walls of the Unseen University is missing. (gasps) Rincewind is missing? (laughs) (laughs) That was my thought, too. Yeah. His first worry is how he will explain to the Wizards' Council that the Octavo has been stolen, especially since, as an ape, he has a vocabulary of one word, ook. But he fears more for the consequences that may befall the entire Discworld if the eight great spells are not returned to their rightful place soon. As word of the theft spreads through the streets and alleys, Captain Vimes of the City Watch assembles his men. 
I have given you all instructions on which of the great spells you are looking for and need each of you to work with one of the guilds to find out what you can and get me those spells. It's that simple. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least it would be if this wasn't Hank Morpork. Pitted against the other players who will be all out to return the spells first and will be just itching to use their newfound guild abilities on anybody who might get in their way and the everyday perils of life in the busiest, most populated and least law-abiding city on the Discworld... Things are never quite that simple. Uh, and there's an extra paragraph there, but I think that's enough. You got the gist. Weirdly, like I'd sort of skimmed that before and I understood the premise, but it doesn't actually say anything about how the spells escape the book or why or, but I mean, you know, it's already such a long thing. If you're a Discworld fan listening and that's most of you, you'll have noticed that even though the game is called Guards Guards, it really revolves around this search through Ankh-Morpork Pork for the spells from the Octavo and returning them to the university. And it involves the guilds as well. So you don't really play as any of the Watch characters. They barely really made a blip in this game. Like there's, they're in some of the cards, but I don't really feel like they were any more present than any other sort of regular character. Yeah. It's really guilds guilds, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is a guild game. And I think maybe we'll talk about this thematically as we go along, but basically each player represents one of the guilds. As yourself, you are nominally a watch member who is coordinating the efforts of those guild volunteers, but then you also recruit volunteers to help you find one of the missing spells and return it to the university. Um, you don't need to find all eight. In fact, each guild has a little card. Uh, there's two for each guild, in fact, because you can have up to six players, even though there's only four guilds. And it tells you which five of the eight spells you need to find. They're not named or anything. They're just different, different colors. Um, which are both denoted by the actual colour on the board and by the name of the colour, which is just written as green or cyan or blue. And you need to find those spells and return them. That's kind of the main gist. Uh, You can't do it by yourself, though. You have to recruit volunteers, which are um, three decks of cards. They're categorised as man and beast, lords and ladies, and what's the other one? Um, shades and shadows. Shades and shadows. That's right. So they're different sort of categories of, of characters who have different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, one thing I'll say is that I know that the background of the designers was mostly in role playing games. And I think that shows from the mechanics that are on display here. So the characters, the volunteers that you recruit, they have four stats that they use to help you in the game. And they have two stats which determine how difficult or costly they are to recruit. And those cards represent characters from most of the books that were published at the time that the game was first published, which was in 2011. So it definitely goes all the way up to at least Monstrous Regiment, I think further than that as well. But uh, we didn't see quite all the characters in this playthrough. But there's a lot of them. Mm. Um, and you have a little pawn that represents you and your team wandering around the city on this little sort of map. It's very abstracted. It doesn't look a lot like Ankh-Morpork, but it does give the feel of it because all of the places are there. So it's split into four quarters. Each quarter has one of the guild headquarters in it and then also some places where you can recruit people. Uh, some of them have a tavern. Some of them have a hospital. Some of them have a watch house. And some of them have uh, temples and stores where you can buy spells and items to help you. The river is a bit um, beautifully clean, though, in the illustration. (laughs) It is very blue, isn't it? Yeah. That is not normal, Fang Morpork. When you are returning the spell, narratively, your volunteers are doing what they call in the game a spell run which means they're carrying the energy of the spell. And there's a great illustration of this on the art of the box with a a watchman sort of carrying this glowing 
spark of light in <laughs> two hands while several of the other characters kind of surround them to help them as <laughs> they run back towards the university. And then once you get back to the university, you have to pass basically a, a skill check. So if you've played any role-playing game, you, you roll a dice, you add the relevant skill from your volunteers. And if you pass a certain number, if you get that number or above, you pass and you return the spell successfully. Mm. And that's uh, described as a, a wizard gate. So, the idea is there's these spells protecting the great spell room where the Octavo normally lives. And you have to pass those challenges in order to get in there and put the spell back where it belongs. Now, that's the basics. There's a lot of other wrinkles in the game that I'm sure we'll talk about as we get into it. But that hopefully gives you mm. an idea. Why don't we start off by saying which guild we played and maybe some of the characters that we recruited. Let's do it in order of like how we chose and then why we chose, perhaps. Yeah. You chose first? Yes, I chose the Guild of Alchemists. That was very arbitrary. I am wearing a dress with potion bottles on it today, (laughs) so I figured that I may as well dress the part. Um, And as the Guild of Alchemists, I was able to do a particularly nasty, sneaky (laughs) thing which seemed very in keeping with the game. So we'll talk about that more later. It got me immediately though. Um, And then it was me, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I chose the Guild of Thieves and I also had a – I sort of chose it because of the ability it had. Um, But we can talk about that later um, as well when we talk about it. I mean, I think we can talk about it now. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the guilds now. So Mm -hmm. why don't you explain your ability? Yeah, Yeah, sure. So as the Guild of Alchemists, what I could do when people moved – you know, close to me is I could sneak a bottle of fire water <laughs> into their bag and <laughs> fire water. Well, it's kind of a Molotov cocktail, really. It's mm-hmm. a, it's an explosive bottle of something that means that if somebody rolls an eight, right? We're rolling a D eight and an eight usually is an automatic success or close to it. But if somebody rolls an eight instead of having their automatic success, they have automatic failure and their bag blows up and they lose one of their volunteers. So it's a particularly take that kind of ability. And I didn't get to do it very often, but when I did, it was very, very satisfying. <laughs> you got both of us. Yeah, so. I did. You did. And me immediately, because like you got it in my bag and I immediately rolled an eight. <laughs> so, yeah. Very good. Yeah. Melissa mentioned the concept of take that in board games, and it'll come up a fair bit in this episode, so it's worth explaining. Take that games include ways to let a player interfere with another player's progress towards winning without eliminating them from the game. Basically, it means being able to push other folks backwards as well as yourself forwards. That might mean making them discard cards, lose resources or points, or even skip a turn. Guards Guards has lots of take that options, which does suit the way the guilds treat each other in Ankh-Morpork, but we'll leave it up to you to decide if it's something Vimes would tolerate. The Thieves Guild one, which um, fascinated me, was that you have the ability to make their volunteers bicker amongst themselves. Like you take something and they all start accusing each other of having stolen it. So you end up, um, if you roll high enough, you can make them lose one of their volunteers from their hand. So I don't think I pulled that off successfully except for in conjunction with your Firewater one because I played it on... Did I? No, no, I played a card one on Ben. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think I pulled that one off at all. So that's why I chose my guild and it did not, <laughs> did yeah. not pay off. Well, I mean, this is the only difference between the guilds and they all have quite similar abilities. The alchemist one's the outlier. The mm. other ones are all very similar. So I played the, the guild of fools 
mostly for, you know, personal reasons. I just felt a kinship with them. <laughs> uh, and their special ability is to do some street theatre, which might distract one of the volunteers who passes by from the other team. Because you can only use these abilities when another player's pawn passes within a couple of spaces of yours. So you basically go, oh, they're passing by. Well, I will uh, distract you or steal something or slip this into your pocket. And in mine, I, I do some street theatre. And then possibly... Unless the player can make a charm check, they can roll a high enough result on their dice, one of their characters wanders off. Which is <laughs> very funny. They're, uh, they, they, they go off to watch the street theatre instead of doing their job. Yeah, that was pretty fun. Yeah, And the remaining guild is the Assassin's Guild, which none of us chose, but that was the one I was tossing up between. So Yeah, and they have a similar thing, They, they but they it's more direct. They sort of slip into the shadows and stab someone. Yeah. <laughs> it's less fun. Yeah, I mean, it, mechanically, basically the same as the Thieves Guild or the Guild of Fools, but it seems a bit more brutal and direct. And they mm. all use different statistics. So you make a roll to make the thing happen, which is based on one of the three stats you have as a player faction. So you have uh, the stat of charm, which helps you recruit volunteers. You have magic, which helps you cast spells. And you have uh, the guild stat, which helps you do stuff with your guild. And that's the one you have to roll to use your guild special ability. Um, so you make you have to make a roll to make it happen, but then the opponent gets a, a roll to try and prevent that from happening. And which stat that uses depends on which guild is affecting you. Mm. Except if you're the alchemists, yeah. you just blow up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty mixed, wasn't it? When we played, sometimes we succeeded in doing our special guild ability and mm. sometimes we just didn't. Mm. Um, and sometimes people were protected from it as well. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that, again, you know, this is where I think the role-playing background of the designers comes in. You do roll for most things in this game. There's very little you can do that you just automatically get to do. And that does mean that sometimes, you know, you, you go, this is what I want to do on my turn, and you roll a dice and then nothing happens. Uh, like when you were trying to return <sighs> one of the spells, oh, Melissa, oh, how many? It was three turns. It was oh, three, three turns in a row. I had to make two uh, make two successful die rolls, and each time I succeeded on the first one, and then I rolled a one on the second, which <laughs> is an automatic fail. And the only way you could fail, because you'd put so many volunteers in, you, yeah. you couldn't fail otherwise, yeah. And that's something else, you know, that's also a very um, role-playing game, particularly Dungeons & Dragons kind of thing, to have these, this idea of critical success and failure, where mm. if you roll the maximum result on the dice, often you'll get something extra. Um, and if you roll the minimum result on the dice, you get something worse than just failing or you definitely fail even if normally you wouldn't. We also saw the opposite of that. Like um, one of the things oh, – yeah. so there's kind of two ways you recruit people. One is you go to a specific square that lets you recruit one specific category of potential volunteer or you can go to a tavern where you have to roll a dice – and you randomly get assigned one of those categories, but you get a bonus to the charm roll because you're having a drink with them, I mm. guess. Um, and every, nearly every time someone went to the tavern to recruit that, you rolled an eight. Mm. So you got, mm. which means you get to recruit one extra person. And that worked out really well for the two of you. I don't yeah. think I ever went to a tavern, so I never got to roll that magical eight that always seemed to happen. <laughs> it was always the same tavern too. Yes. Yeah, yes. Which, which one this, is it? The mended That drum? one there. Yeah, broken drum. It's the broken drum. So, yeah. So, if that happened to you, please let us know. Yeah, hard is there recommend. some sort of weird thing? Yeah, can recommend. It's in, it's in the guide tag. More pork. Definitely go here if you want to <laughs> you know, recruit some volunteers. So, that, that was where we played. And then you sort of choose your starting place on the board based on which guild 
you chose and then Mm -hmm. that determines your player colour, which really just helps you remember where you've got to get back to. Mm. And I think that's, I don't know, for me, the game feels old school in some ways. Oh, very, doesn't Doesn't it? it? Mm. Yeah, reminds me, I mean, I'm not a fan of this game, so I don't mean this is insult. I don't think it strongly reminds me of this, but there's elements of it that remind me a bit of Talisman where there's a lot of luck involved. Yeah, or even Dungeon. Yes. And that was one of the things I thought was really interesting when you were going through and running us through the rules Mm. was this focus on moving around the board so each turn your character can move up to six spaces. There are some modifiers, but generally it's up to six spaces. And I was a little bit kind of moving around a board, you know, what are we doing? But actually that was really important in terms of the game, particularly because it let the luggage catches. Oh, oh yeah, the yeah. luggage. So when you recruit someone, each card, and there's a lot of information on the recruit cards, but it's actually fairly straightforward. You don't use all of it at once. Um, but right up the top of the card, it says luggage moves, <laughs> you know, a certain number. Or some of them do say the luggage doesn't move. And so the luggage starts on one particular square. It's one of the bridges. And when you've recruited someone, you get to move it around the board and it has a little track of footprints, which I thought was a very cute way to represent that. Um, which splits off and goes in different directions at some points, and you get to choose which specific path it follows. And, yeah, if it moves through the space of a player, it tramples them and they get sent to the nearest hospital, which (laughs) is kind of either you lose a turn or you have to spend some of your money to get treated in order not to lose a turn. There was one move where it got both of you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one move. Yeah, who moved it? Then, Look, it's not. There was nowhere that? else it could go, <laughs> except for the bit where I chose for it to go through one of you. But that's you know mostly yeah, that's true. And then you both had to go to the hospital together, and that's nice. Mm. Actually, no. And the money- then he nearly gave me the pox, yeah. which was less nice. Yeah. Um, but I think that was really interesting. That sense that you had to control the location of the luggage as Mm. well and your location in respect of the luggage. I think I picked that up quite early because you guys sent me to hospital (laughs) on like turn two. Yes. And you had no money left. I had no money so I couldn't pay my hospital bills. So so I missed a turn and I was sitting there thinking, well, this game is crap. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that made it feel most old school because it's very rare you find a modern board game that, causes someone to lose a turn mm. because they know, they know how bad that feels. It feels like, you know, well, I just do nothing. Like everyone else gets an opportunity and I'm doing nothing over mm. here. I and had then, to turn that one for like 20 minutes at one point. It felt like yes. the things kept <laughs> happening. I was like, oh. Yeah. So then to, and particularly if you have a 20-minute turn and then I have a turn that lasts exactly zero minutes, <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, it feels pretty bad. So that is a bit of an old school design choice, but it didn't happen too often. And it made you um, think about strategically where you wanted to end up because there's spaces that aren't in the luggage's rampage path, so you could sort of work your way out about That's that. That's true, but mm. most of the places you want to go, mm. <laughs> uh, like to recruit people, are definitely on the path. Tavern is not. <laughs> Being able to get in behind the luggage and follow the luggage around the board was was quite a nice thing, you know, if it works and if the luggage doesn't take off because some of those cards move the luggage like 14 spaces or something, we which is the opposite a third side. of the way around the board. Yeah, and we, you know, as a player you can only move usually like six spaces. Mm. So, yeah, it creeps up on you pretty quick and it moves on every other player's turn mm. as well. well Every, every time they recruit someone as well, which could mean that you could move twice on someone's turn. Mm. It would be really chaotic. I think if you were playing with six people, yeah. you would just be assuming that you were going to get got every couple of turns. Galumped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And the luggage is not the only danger because um, when you recruit volunteers, sometimes they have a little marker on the card, which means you also draw a fate card, which have various random effects. Uh, to give you an idea, I'm going to draw the next one that we mm. didn't get because um, Melissa won the game. This one's called Patrician's Decree. Call to prayer. I suspect there's more than one patrician's decree, but this one's a call to prayer. Fearing that the efforts of mortal man may not be enough to return the great spells, the patrician is hedging his bets by asking the city's priests and clerics to gather their followers and put a word in with their respective gods. Eager to gain the patrician's favour, the temples compete against each other (laughs) to have the biggest congregation. Any players within six tiles of a temple, and there's only two of them on the board, may choose to sacrifice one volunteer from their hand in return for a plus one to their current magic. Uh, that's one of your three important stats and a free curses and cures card. I probably oh. would have done that. Yeah. yeah, I think I probably would have done that. I had a lot of volunteers left I don't think towards I was within, the end. Within, oh, no, no, I'm not within six. Yeah, I don't think I was either, but, you know. Oh, no, I was actually. Hmm? Yeah, my my spot, like where I was hanging around towards the end of the game, uh, was near the Temple of Blind Eye, so I could have given it a go. One of the like, and there's there's sometimes great and sometimes the worst thing ever. So like, oh, yeah. there was one where Ben picked up a fake card and it just gave him one of the spells, so he didn't mm. have to do any of the oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, I didn't even pick that one up. You picked that one up, and then we had to roll oh, to see. Oh yeah. Who, who, oh, that's right, and roll to see who got it. Who got and a you spell got for it. free? Yeah, and mm. that's that's huge because. Otherwise, you have to go to the space on the board, which are all around the edge of the board, and usually one of them is close to where you begin and where you have to go back to, but the other ones are quite far away. They're on the other side of the board. So you have to go there, and then your followers, you know, your volunteers go back for free. Um, But I wasn't near it, and I didn't have the cards necessarily to be ready to get it. And, yeah, Melissa pulled that card, and I got one for free, which let me catch up. And I think later on I got one for free as well because I don't think I, I would have come anywhere near where I did without having that ability. Yeah, because Liz, you pulled out ahead in front of us. You were a couple of spells ahead at one point. You had four and I think we were both still on two. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd just complete one then you're, and then it's like, here, fate hands you a spell. And I'm like, <laughs> hump. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing, though, you're talking about other bad things that can happen on the board. And, of course, the other bad thing that can happen on the board is the dragons. Oh, yeah. And um, they can come up from fate cards or they can come up from players (laughs) as well. Did any players um, (laughs) summon a dragon? That would be a terrible thing for a player to do. (laughs) Yeah, did any player? Who would do that? I mean, certainly the Guild of Fools would never. (laughs) Yeah, um, thieves don't want to come up against a dragon. I'm sure it was an alchemical dragon. Oh, yeah, and you really got me with that too. Uh, well, no, it was interesting because it felt like it would have a massive impact. And when the first dragon came out, which was from a fake card, it mm. really screwed me over for about two rounds because when a dragon lands, what, what it does, it goes into one of the four quarters of the board, it lands on the guild house, and then you basically can't access any of the buildings in that quarter because the way they describe it in the rules is everybody's scared and they're shuttering up all of their shops and they're not coming outside. And Initially, everyone has to send a volunteer or two to try and fight the dragon together. The first time that happened, we rolled a one. <laughs> and the uh, second time that happened, we rolled a one. That's, that's, oh, that's the true. The third time, yeah. Uh, and and the, three of my guys just got killed. Yeah. And if you want the dragon to go away, you've got to fight it. Or if you're lucky or if someone directs it there, if the luggage runs through its space, it doesn't leave altogether, but it moves around the board to a different guild house. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't happen for about three turns or but four turns. I pulled it me. off eventually and I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Because it was on my guild house. So I was like, 
get off. I'm, I'm trying to go there. Yeah. Yeah. And it Not wasn't that I got there, but I could have. That's true. And I was just trying to get one of the spells in that same quarter, but I couldn't get it because there was a dragon there. Mm. And the dragons are really tough. Like they're super tough. Like normally the characters in the cards very rarely have a skill above five points. Uh, but in order to defeat a dragon, you need to get a total on your dice roll plus the bonuses that the characters have of like 20 or more. So you really got to send a whole stack of characters together to make sure you've got a good chance. And yeah, if you roll a one, it's still an automatic failure. So why would someone summon one? (laughs) It would be good if the players would cooperate. It would. It would be good if the players (laughs) would cooperate. I sent out all of my people. (laughs) You know, on on that. All of them. Well, on that note, given the theme of the game, which is, you know, there's this threat to the city and we need to find these spells so that the world doesn't collapse. Um, does it, is that a weird theme for what is essentially a competitive game? Like there's very little cooperative element. There is one way that all the players can lose, which is if all four dragons are summoned at the same time and we don't defeat at least one of them, we lose. Uh, but, but did it feel, did, I mean, how did you feel about that mix of the theme and, and the mechanics there? I quite liked it because the game felt chaotic in a way that was genuine to the mission. Which is like, we're all working together to protect the city, but we're also all working in our own interests. So like, if all the guilds had in an ideal world worked together to just do the, do the spells, then the game would be like much more chill. But it's like, no, we want to save the city, but we also want to come out on top. So if a dragon comes in, and the way that you can use a dragon either like as something to bring you all together or to bring in to like cause chaos to other players, like I quite like that. And I felt that that worked with what the game was about for me, like what they said it was about. Mm. I was less sure about the theme. I felt like there are eight great spells, so why do we stop playing when one of us catches five spells? Mm. Yeah, that's um, You know, between us, I'm just looking at the board, we caught 13 spells, but, you know, shouldn't we have only caught eight? Um, why wasn't it maybe cooperative with secret victory conditions for the guilds or something like that mm. I might have felt was a little bit more um more true to the theme mm. um it just it it felt very take that and I I really kind of enjoyed it as a take that mm. game but I'm not sure that it quite tallied with what the story of the game for me. Yeah, I think certainly the guilds competing with each other is a big part of the way the Discworld works mm. and it fits in with the theme of Ankh-Morpork, but I think because there's this common problem and you're also, I mean, on top of that, you're not, you're not, you know, the head of the guild. You're a watch, you know, member um, trying to coordinate with them. Ah. There's a lot of layers of different bits of Discworld lore that have kind of been, I don't want to say thrown together. I know that the designers are massive fans and they really spent, they spent years working Mm. on this before it was published, but it does feel like it doesn't really, like the narrative of the game doesn't really, like the individual bits of narrative that happen as part of the play of the game work. But as soon as you look at sort of the bigger kind of picture, I think it does, it feels a little bit weird to me. Maybe you could fix it with some of the writing. It's like the great spells are like all well and powerful, but when you get five of them, that's peer pressure. That's like quorum. The other's like, all right, we got to come back to <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you just chuck in a line about that. Be like, yeah. oh, well, if you get the majority of them, then the others just sort of like get. Yeah, that makes sense. Quorum. first. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think if there was a better arcane word for that, but I don't, I don't think they're there having is. a board meeting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the great spells need to 
<laughs> yeah. It, I mean, also, as you're saying, you know, we've collected, how many did we get? Five, nine? Thirteen. Thirteen, uh, which means we definitely collected some of them more than once. And it's not really clear how that works either, given the way that it's kind of depicted is you go and find the spell and you carry it back to the university. Yeah. So it's a bit, it, again, it's a little bit weird. I mean, like game-wise it works fine, but narrative-wise parts of it are a little messy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, what if they're like summoning boxes for the quorum of spells? I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it could be fixed in the writing as well, but I agree that there are issues. Bunnies. No, it no. It could like, be bunnies. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And then spells are like, we love those. Come back and pat them. Or just not spells at all, you mm. know? I mean, then you wouldn't be bringing them back to the university, I guess. But it could be, could be books. something else. Books. Like books have some redundancy and duplication. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, I want to make it clear. I actually really had a great time playing this game. So I'm really, I'm, I'm being picky because if I'm honest, like when I read the rules and I was learning how it was played, on paper, I felt like this doesn't feel like it's going to work. This feels like mm. it's to- so many things thrown together. It's just not going to. But then playing it, and this is why I think it's always so important to play games because the experience of the play is so much more important than, you know, the rules just being written on their own. It was actually lots of fun. Like yeah. I had a good time. Mm, yeah. But one of the things that also doesn't quite gel with the theme is that we have to search for the spells, but we know exactly where they are. They're marked very clearly mm. on the map. Mm. So you always know where you've got to go to get the spells that you're guild needs to win um but you do i mean there's still a bit of strategy there because it's like well if i get that one now i've got to get close to melissa and then she's going to try and slip an explosive potion in my pocket what a shame (laughs) Mm. it was good i love that one i wish the the players like the powers for the guilds were a bit more different i i thought that was fun because yours was was fun it was it was quite different and i just had this this image of me kind of sneaking up to you (laughs) and slipping this little bottle into your into your pocket, you yeah. know. I mean, I really like the image of of the Guild of Fools doing some street theater. Yeah, but the result of it in the game was a little bit lackluster. It's like, oh, we'll make a, I'll make a roll, and then you make a roll, and if I succeed and you fail, then one of your folks wander off. And mm-hmm. I'm like, mm. I feel like maybe we could have done something a bit more interesting than that. Mm. But because it's the only way the guilds are differentiated. Mm. Um, but I mean, not that you don't have a lot of variety because you collect all these different followers, and they don't have. Most of them don't have special powers. Some of them do, but they're usually quite passive things. Like there's a few characters who prevent you from getting the pox, <laughs> which is actually, that's my favorite rule in the game is that uh, some of the characters, mostly the um, the canting crew, the beggars of Ankh-Morpork, um, they have uh, the pox, they're infectious. And the rule is if you touch a card yeah. that is, has the pox, then you as a player have the pox and you can pa- you automatically pass it on to other players if they come within one space of you on the board, um, which I thought was very, I mean, like it's gross, but also it's great. It's, it's a fun mm. rule. But at the same time, uh, you know, it didn't come up very much, did it? Oh, mm. thanks. Yeah, it came up from me. It did. It happened <laughs> near a hospital, so that was okay. Well, yeah. I had, I'll talk about some of the cards. Some of the, so this is the other thing that's a little bit weird. The, the cast of characters that they've chosen, now obviously they've got a lot of character cards, which is great because if you're a big Discworld fan, you get to see a lot of favorite characters and some, if I'm honest, like some kind of left of field, you know, <laughs> C grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who is that? Oh, they're in that book. I mean, <laughs> no, there wasn't anyone I didn't recognize, but there are a few people I was like, wow, I probably wouldn't have put them in a board game. But uh, I had, uh, I had Igor. Mm. Uh, who prevents me from getting the pox. Uh, Vina the Ravenhead from The Last Hero. I had uh, Grebo, uh, Edward Death, uh, Tawny. <laughs> um, uh, that picture. <laughs> that picture. Now, this I heard a story about this. Uh, so one of the designers, 
David Brashaw was on the Truth Shall Make You Fret, did an interview with them recently, and apparently this card, the Tawny card, uh, had to get altered because originally she wasn't wearing any clothes at all. And mm-hmm. you, could, you could see some things that probably Ooh. in a family board game might be slightly inappropriate. Not that you would see much, to be honest, looking at the card because the, the illustration is kind of between her legs as she's sort of bending over and you can mm. see her face upside down and you can't really see anything because of the way it's framed, but I can kind of see why they changed it. But, um, yeah, so there's some great characters in there. Did anyone have any in your hands at the end of the game? Oh, I also had Moist von Lipwig, but in his guise as Albert Spangler, where, uh, and he's, you know how he's a great master of disguise. <laughs> I have to say, I don't know how I feel about him being depicted as wearing like a Groucho Marx, like, oh, glasses with yeah. fake nose and moustache. Yeah. That's not what he'd do. No, he doesn't need to. But anyway, that was cute. I had Mrs. Cake, but I, I, I went through the, the marquee. Of Fan Taylor, who did not look anything like I imagined. Mm. So he's, he looks like a real brawling, like 1920s. I am boxing in a ring. And yeah, like he'd be right there for Miss Fisher's murder mysteries. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Has got that look about him. I had Magrat Garlic, who mm. was absolutely my favorite of all the pictures. You know, she just really looked like I picture her. And I loved that I got plus one magic just from drawing her card. Yeah. Um, and I, I was quite keen on the witch cards in general. So at one point I had Mrs. Arwodge and <laughs> she is so scary. She even scares the pox away, which I really <laughs> liked. Um, or, or Granny Weatherwax where you get a scroll, but also if people try to attack you with magic, they deduct two points. So their magic doesn't work as well against you. Makes sense. I do quite enjoy the, I didn't have her at any point, but I enjoyed the illustration for Gladys the Golem because she's done up like a cleaning lady from a movie, but she also looks like she's just received an unexpected compliment. And she's like, oh, me? It's very <laughs> Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Yes. Yeah. It's just so a charming. Great illustration. And the illustration's up by Stephen Player, who has illustrated a few other Discworld things before. I'm pretty sure, I think the same artist who did The Witches and maybe, oh, I'd have to look Hang on, I'm going to have to look this up. <laughs> but definitely has illustrated some other Discworld stuff. Mm, but you could look at them for days. <laughs> yeah. While you do that, I want to talk about, you, you spoke, Ben, about reading the rules and feeling like there were too many rules. And that was certainly the way that I felt when you were explaining mm. them as well. And, and we got to quite a lot of points where we said, oh, we'll just follow up on that later. I'd be quite interested to read the rules to see whether we missed any or mm. whether we got anything wrong. But I, I felt like there were places, and perhaps this is about the age of the game, right, where in a more modern game there might be a bit more information design coming into it to give you a clue about some of the spaces. For example, um, there are spaces that you move through and you get their effect as you move through, you don't have to finish your turn. And there are other spaces where you have to finish your turn when you land on that space. And I felt like maybe, you know, just having a coloured outline or something on those spaces would have helped me Mm. to get a sense of what's going on at that point on the board. Even arrows or something, it's like you can just keep going. Yeah. yeah. We should probably talk about saboteurs because of how they impact on things because there's spots on the board that cross two zones 
And that made it sometimes confusing which zone you were in or which zones you passed through because you had to get back to a certain place. So you weren't sure if your home plate was straddling too. Were you in both or was it just one of them? Yeah. And I couldn't find an answer to that in the rules. And this, I mean, the, so which we're has playing impact on the game. Yeah. And this, this important to mention, we're playing the revised 2012 edition mm. of the game. And the main reason that it was revised when they reprinted it, because uh, it was originally released in 2011, was that people complained about the rule book and how confusing and difficult it was to follow the rules. Um, I think the layout is logical in this one, but the way it works is it kind of, uh, it tells you how to start the game and then there's a heading for each sort of thing that you can do in the game. Um, and they, they're kind of in a logical order because they sort of start with recruiting people, which is the sort of thing you need to do to be good at anything. And then they're in, how do you get a spell and return it, which is the thing you need to do to win. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff about how do you do all the other stuff in the game? And when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, because again, it doesn't feel like a modern board game rule book. But at the same time, you know, when we were playing it this time, mostly I could find out what we needed to know mm. as we went along. Very quickly too. But it is, it is quite long as rule books go. Like it's 18 pages, which is for a game of this weight. So this is sort of a term that gets used uh, in board game circles, meaning how complicated is the game. How complicated do you think the game is, Ben? I, I would say, look, it's kind of a, it, I would call it a medium weight game. Yeah, that's where I'm coming down Because it's as not, well. it's not really simple like something like Scrabble or Monopoly, right? Um, where it's got a fairly small number of rules and you, you only have to learn a few of them to play it. And there's a few that come up in very specific situations. And it's not super heavy where you have to learn like 400 rules in order to play mm-hmm. successfully because there's a lot of randomness and weirdness in the game. But it has got a lot of moving parts, even if, you know, you don't always control when those parts come up. And I think it's pitched that way on purpose. Uh, I know they revised it when they were talking to Z-Man Games, who published um, the early or the first couple of editions of it. They kind of got asked to revise it to make it a bit more board gamey for the hobby market, because originally it was a bit more on, like it was really heavy on the take that stuff. Mm. So do you think the length of the rulebook matches the weight of the game? I think yes, but I also think that, you know, because they've kind of tried to pitch it so it appeals to fans who probably want to play it like a family board game night kind of game and for hobbyists who are also Discworld nerds, I think it sort of sits somewhere in between those two things, maybe in a slightly awkward place. I'm not really sure. Like, again, I think it played much better than the rules suggested it would to me. Yeah, I feel like the rule book is too long. Um, and I think the rule book was too long in 2012 as well to really sort of connect to, to those fans of the books who maybe haven't played a lot of board games before. And that was generally my feeling as we played the game. And I couldn't point to exactly what, but I felt there were maybe a couple of things that could have been dropped from the game without affecting the gameplay mm. but might have just simplified it a little bit. Having said that, I've got no idea what they are, right? I can't say, oh, you should take out the the temples or something. But yeah. um, but maybe there are things that would have just made it a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more easy without taking out the real charm of the game because like you, you know, I really enjoyed mm. the game. Mm. Um, it's, it's really charming. It's got a lovely kind of take that element to it. Um, it's, it's quite thematic. Um, but it just felt a little bit fiddly. Mm. Especially the final step, like the final. Oh. 
because basically you have to get past, what is it, one, five challenges of increasing difficulty. Every time you get a spell, you have to pass a specific level of it. So like initially it's just you have to have rolled like 10 streetwise, so like stats get harder. But then by the time you get to the fourth one, you have to do two rolls for two different things. And can someone who's more board gamey than me explain the final one? Because Oh, yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, I mean, that, that fourth one really kind of, oh no, it was the last one it's that the fifth one. It's really, the fifth one that gets, really like kind of tripped you up, wasn't it? No, I was just thinking when you. you were rolling and you kept rolling. That was like, the fourth one. That was the fourth one. That was the fourth yeah. one. Yeah. So, so immediately you've gone from having to pass one test that's gotten more difficult to passing a test that's slightly less difficult, but there's two different ones. Mm. So instead of just collecting a bunch of volunteers who are strong in one stat, that you can add together because they have these four different stats, which are brawl, toughness, streetwise, and loyalty. Instead of just needing, you know, a lot of points in one of those, now you need quite a lot of points in two different ones. And then you have to make two dice rolls that will succeed in a row. And then for the last one, they really, so when you're collecting your last spell, if you're playing all the way to five, and they do suggest that if you want to make the game shorter, you can reduce the number of spells you play to. And we did initially think maybe we'll just play to three spells, but then we actually were having a good time. So we, <laughs> we played all the way to five. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, instead of doing the normal thing, because one of the other things that I find was a little confusing to wrap my head around until I, I mean, I, I kind of got it in the end, but still thematically it feels a bit weird, is you are moving your pawn around the board to go to places and do things. But as soon as you've got a spell for those first four spells that you gather, you don't move back to your original space you send some of your volunteers and thematically, you know, they're carrying the spell for you. You're trusting them to get it back to the university and pass through the challenge to get it back into the room where it belongs. But they don't, they're not represented on the board in any way. They're just cards that you play from your hand in front of you. And so there's no moving back to the thing, but you, it is still important which way they go. You have to announce which quarters you're going through because something we haven't talked about, you can plant saboteurs who are lurking in one of the quarters of the board. And it's you have these four tiles with the different quarters named on them. So you put that face down. So other players can see you have a saboteur, but they don't know where it is. So they're trying to sort of plot their route to not go through places, but they don't know where they've got to avoid. Anyway, they pop up and interfere with you. So that all happens. And that's the same for the first four challenges. But then the fifth one, they're like, no, for the final spell, you have to take it back yourself. Your posse won't do. Mm. Yeah, and you've got to take – you still have to have a posse. Like, you've got to have someone with you, but your pawn has to physically go back to your starting space. And there's no portals or anything. Like, it's yeah, just no plod, plod, plod. It's like six spaces on the board mm. per turn. And that also removes, as far as we could tell, and maybe we're reading the rules wrong, but as far as we could tell, that also removed the main thing you can do to get in the other player's way, which is to sabotage them because that only works on volunteers who are doing what they call a spell run. So mm. that is quite, it, it really slows the game down for that last thing, but it also removes a lot of the ways you can interfere with the other player's ability to win. Mm. And and you reach, at the end of the game, you reach this point where you're just trying to roll a big enough number mm. twice in a row in order to win. Something that, that maybe you could have done, I don't know what you guys think, whether this would have made it better. We've each ended up with some money left over at mm. the end of the game. What if you could pay, say, five money to increase one of your die rolls by one, mm. right? Only ever by one, so you're still kind of losing, but maybe it would just speed that up a little bit, that frustration of, okay, I'm just sitting here and I've just got to roll dice until I 
till I roll high enough numbers twice in a row. Because there's no strategy or anything to it and that's just a bit dull. Yeah, because mm. you can increase those stats on your board. So this is the other thing is there's two different sets of stats. And again, there's there's a few things that I think could trip up that sort of the more general audience for this mm. game. One of them is that you've got these two different sets of statistics. So you've got the the statistics that your volunteers have, which are what are used for the first four gates. And then you've got the stats that you yourself have as a character slash as the whole guild, and they're different stats. Uh, and those ones are used um, for the final two challenges that you make when you return the fifth spell. And also to recruit your volunteers. So that That's to be right. clear that there's, they're mm. not just coming in at the end. But no, no. And you do use them for other things. So you use, use charm to recruit volunteers, use magic to cast spells on the other players, um, and use the guild stat to do your guild action or to sabotage people. So those things do come into the game, but there's only a few circumstances where you can increase them. So one is when you recruit a volunteer, they might have, and not many of them do, but some of them do have a little bonus on the bottom, which gives you plus one to one of your stats. I did not recruit many of those. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Uh, And I I think but when I was setting up the game to learn it, and when we played it this time, you start off with two cards and both times I got one of those as a starting card. I was like, oh, there must be heaps of them. But no, there's not. There's very few of the cards seem to have those. The other way you can do it in a move that's quite reminiscent of Monopoly, if you pass through your home guild, you get paid $3. $200. $200. And you also have uh, the opportunity to spend 8 or $16 if you have it. And for each $8 that you spend up to twice, you can increase one of your basic stats by one. But you can't do that like multiple turns in a row. Once you've done it, you have mm-hmm. to wait at least one turn before you can do it again. Plus, if there's a dragon in play, it could be sitting on your on your, guild. on your guild house and, and two you. of the times it was on my guild. I was like, excuse me, it's four guilds. Yeah. <laughs> so they did feel, I, I think all of us at some points during the game had quite a frustrating run of turns where we just felt like we couldn't really do anything to further our goals. Yeah. And even the final turn, I wanted to move to my guild house mm. to increase my magic and my guild to their final level. But the dragon was there. I luggage so the dragon well, onto there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, well, I may as well just roll the dice and see what happens. Yeah. And I got lucky and boom. Game's over. Sorry, guys. Yes. And I mean, look, you had done a good job yeah. of increasing your stats through the game. Like they were at nearly maximum mm. already because mm. they go up to plus five for the magic and guild stats, which are the ones that you use to pass those final two challenges. And you're rolling an eight-sided dice. So if you've got plus five and you have to get a nine on those final challenges, that's, I mean, they're not, you're not guaranteed to win, but they're pretty good odds. But yeah, it's, it is still the luck of the roll of the dice. Which is a bit. Boring way to finish. Yeah. I mean, Not it's, boring, but like it's, it could be better considering how fun the rest of the game is. Yeah, and how thematic and interesting the rest of the game is. Yeah. The stuff with the wizard gates, like they've given them names that reference Discworld characters and they've gone to some effort to try and justify it in the fiction in the rule book. It doesn't really feel like something that it, feel, it feels like a very gamey thing. Mm. It doesn't quite feel like it fits into the... Like, it's not anything that's mentioned in any of the books. Yeah, and I feel like the stats are actually underused. There are probably too many stats, mm. both, both, um, well, particularly on the cards. I think our stats are quite useful. Those three different stats of Charm, Magic and Guild make sense, but maybe you could compress the number of um, numbers on the cards. Gosh, we sound like real kind of grumpy people, well, though, when we really did 
have a good time. We did have a good time. Game. That four hours was like I didn't realize it was four hours. It just blitzed past. It did not feel yeah. Like I mean, it didn't it didn't feel long until the end. I think the end did drag a little bit, but not mm. too much because it didn't. I mean, it took you a few turns to win, Melissa. But I think once we were all kind of on the last spell, and that's the other thing. Like I think a mark of a game that's been sort of pretty well designed and clearly play tested is that if you play it and you're not practiced at it. Uh, everyone is pretty close to winning mm. and it's exciting. And I mean, whether we had a lucky game or whether that most games are like that because it's, it's well balanced in that way and that, you know, no one player can have a huge advantage over the others. But I, it, it felt exciting. Like it wasn't clear who was going to win, which yeah. is what you want. But I think I agree with you about the stats and the characters because, you know, I, the only way I had because I couldn't get back to my guild house and I didn't have enough money to increase my stats by paying for it. The only other way I could do it was by recruiting and, and hoping that I could find volunteers who would give me bonuses mm. to those stats. So I was recruiting all these volunteers and none of them were giving me those bonuses. And I had this handful. <laughs> of, I think I had like eight different volunteers by the end of the game and they did nothing for me. They mm. were, they were absolutely useless. The only thing they could have helped me do was fight the dragon. But once it moved away from where it was in my way, I didn't need to do that. Yeah. So whereas if yeah. you'd got because you get money, right? If you successfully fight the dragon, mm. if you'd then been able to use that money in some way, that that might have yeah made it a bit more exciting. Kept kept the excitement going, I suppose, at the end of the game. And I mm. guess you know the other thing I didn't do is I I didn't explore all of the shops and temples, but because they're spread out around the board, that's not necessarily practical. You know, I would have had to move a long way, moving only six spaces a turn mm. to try and get to a shop and hope that one of the items there might give me a boost. But my experience was that the items mostly uh, only gave you a boost to the stats that were useful for the, the mm. volunteers. Although mm. I did find that uh, there was there are some of them that do give you a boost to those main stats. Um, but I, I, I probably, I could have done that actually, because there is a, that one, there's the wizard staff that gives you plus one to two of your main stats until you return your next spell. Mm. And I don't think that said you can't use it for the last one. So probably I should have gone back to that shop and, <laughs> um, tried to remember where I bought it from. Cause when, when you've used a thing, when you've used it up, it goes back into the shop so someone else can buy it. Yeah. I mean, but as I think what happens when you're discussing a game is you focus in, on the things that you think could be improved. Like I, we all had a good time about it. And I'm just going to say, like, I spent a like, quarter of the game just hanging out in like a third, like in a tiny wedge of it, moving mm-hmm. between the same like places where you recruit people. And I had a great time, but yeah. that's mm. probably because I, I was enjoying reading the cards. I was like, okay, are they going to be useful? I think just the disappointment of the last section where your volunteers are basically, you can't even really send them out to sabotage people. I'm just like, what am I? Why have I got all these people now? Like, what am I doing with them? Yeah. yeah. If you could just like utilize them or if like, the lack of portals and things, I think, also frustrated me because I did like it that it slowed you down, but it's nice to have occasionally like the opportunity to just like go to the other side of the board or something, mix things up. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the flavor text, those little snippets of information on the cards was really fun. And mm. that, I, I found that, you know, I was reading those where you don't always when you're playing a game, but here I was looking at, at what it was telling me about the the different characters yeah, I did like that. I, I think I like the, weirdly, uh, maybe for someone who clearly is a big Pratchett fan, I mostly prefer the bits written specifically for the game, like the the text on the fate cards. Because mm. the quotes, I found that the quotes on the character cards, some of them are really great and some of them are like, 
why is this the quote you've chosen for this character? Um, because they're not always a quote that's directly describing the character. Mm. And I think, you know, I get why that is. Like, it might have been difficult to find a quote that was the right length that was that bit. Um, But some of them are are great and and spot on, but some of them you're like, "Mm, yeah, okay. I've got Granny Weatherwax had walked nightly without fear in the bandit-haunted forests of the mountains all her life in the certain knowledge that the darkness held nothing more terrible than she was. Right, that's a good one. That is a good one. Um, Although, personal gripe, there's a typo on the card. And I did did spot quite a few typos on the cards. And this is a second edition reprint, Mm. so you'd hope that that would go through another round of proofing. Shoddy, shoddy proofing. Uh, Look, that can happen. That can happen. (laughs) Maybe, I mean, look, we have talked a bit about the things that we didn't think quite worked. What are the things we liked most about the game. I've mentioned the the pox rule, just the touching of the card. I think that's just such a fun rule. Anything that involves the physical actions and reality of the players, I'm a big fan of. What else have we got that we really liked? I liked the chaos of the luggage. And I think that also counteracts one of my other gripes because sometimes like it was wildly variable how much luggage could move because sometimes the cards were like no luggage movement at all. Others it was six and others it was 13. And sometimes you get two in a row. And sometimes it just says move to the other bridge. So you can't fully plan your moves to avoid the luggage, which I really liked. Yeah, that was a, it was a nice bit of unpredictability and not entirely random because the player who's drawn the card that moves the luggage gets to decide where it turns when it gets to a branch in its path. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I liked the sense that there was a lot going on and there were actually quite a lot of choices on the board. Did I want to go to, you know, different types of buildings or – did I want to summon a dragon and <laughs> uh, and stick it on you guys? Um, so so I liked the the number of choices that I had, and they felt, um, you know, I was I was a bit critical of the theme, but the choices did feel kind of in keeping with that chaotic take that style of gameplay that the game really has. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that it's got a feel that's, that is a bit, um, I, I know that one of the designers in interview described it as being a bit more slapstick and take that. And that was the original version of it before it was published even more so <laughs> like the disc world, as he put it. And I think that is very much the tone of the really early Discworld books, particularly like the first couple where the sort of idea of the great spells comes from, but it's not – I don't think that does as much suit the later time of the books where, um, you know, like if it was about the City Watch, I mean, for a game – I think the thing I keep coming back to is that for a game called Guards, Guards, it really doesn't have a feel like any of the Guards <laughs> novels. You know, like, yes, there's chaos in the streets, but, you know, it's this constant desperate struggle to keep it contained and the jokes are not so much about the action that's happening. It's They're about other things. Whereas this is it's very tonally similar to really early Discworld books, mm-hmm. and I guess the the preference of the authors for those books is fairly clear in the way they've designed the game. But I I enjoyed that, yeah. And the, I look, the art is amazing. Yes, oh, um, fantastic. So I did look up Stephen Player, by the way, and he has illustrated other things. So he did um, the first couple of Discworld maps. So the first commercially available map mm-hmm. of Ankmore Pork and of the Discworld both drawn by Stephen Player, um, which, again, weirdly uh, makes it 
strange that this board does not really look anything like Hank Walpork, but, you know, it's more functional than it mm. is mm. beautiful, and that's fine. I think it works fine. Uh, but he also did illustrations for some of the books as well. So there were 25th anniversary editions of the first two novels. Mm. He illustrated those, and he did the illustrated We Free Men, and he did the illustrations for the characters and the box art for this game. And they, yeah, they are quite beautiful. And I, like, as I've said so many times, I really love seeing alternate versions of the characters and some of them are really great. Yeah. So I'm just, I keep seeing the Gladys card just because it's on top <laughs> of my pile. And it's just so charming. Yeah. I, I will say I was just looking at the rules when we were talking about something earlier. And I think one of the things is there are quite a few gaps, I think, in the rules. So there's a lot of edge cases which are not that edge, like they're quite likely to come up, that are not explicitly addressed in the rules. And so you kind of have to make it up. For example, it felt like the way the rules were written, the way that you sabotage other players didn't apply when you were on that final spell run. But then something in the frequently asked questions in the back makes it clear that you should be able to. But exactly how that works is not clear. Mm. Uh so uh, that might be one I'd need to look up online, but I, but there are a few things like that. And, and you know, there's six of these starting positions and two of them are on the border between two of the quadrants. And again, it's not specified in the book whether that counts as both of them for the purposes of where you pass through to get back to it. So there's little things like that that actually probably come up quite often but are not explicitly addressed in the rules, which make it a little tricky to interpret. I reckon once you've played the game once, you're aware of those and you're going Mm. to talk about them. So, you know, we had this conversation about were the great spells that were on the border between quadrants in both quadrants or in only one and were those those, um, home spaces in both quadrants or only one. And it kind of depends on how you're thinking about them. Like is this mm. a, a big open thing that is kind of simultaneously part of both quadrants or the way that I I think I'd argue to play it is this idea that, well, you can go out door A or you can go out door B and depending on which door you go out or you come in or whether it's a window or a secret door or a tunnel, um, you're going out into a different quadrant and you're entirely avoiding another one. So even though it's not clear in the rules for our first game, Mm. I feel like this is a game that would really reward replay and you'd get that that real kind of joy of the game and also be able to negotiate how you're going to interpret some of those rules that we didn't know about until we came up against them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, because it's a world that most players are going to be very familiar with, you can also kind of negotiate it using the rules of the world as you understand it and also the kind of the the tone of the game that arises from mm. the play. Like you talked about it as like, you know, what if you just does this represent me just sneaking out the window so I don't <laughs> I'm not in the other one. I'm 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 going out the back door. That's very much in keeping with the kind of I'm gonna sneak around and sabotage you and I'm gonna run over there and try and get that spell before you get it before I get trodden on by the luggage and <laughs> Yeah, so many of the little rules just reinforce that tone. So mm. I think tonally it it really works. And I think that there's there's a good amount of chaos here. I agree that maybe it could have maybe one or two fewer systems to worry about. But I again I I'd have to play it a bit more to really refine which one I think I would remove. But I think for new players, the big one that probably 
you know, and I've been playing board games for a very long time. I've played a lot more complicated board games than this. And I think there were a couple of things in this where I was just like, that does not feel narratively or, or gameplay consistent to me. And it's not clear to me why it's different. And so it's diff- difficult for that to stick in my brain. Mm. And I think in some ways that's a problem of of having played too many board games, right, is that I start thinking about it in those terms. Whereas if you come to the game and you're just like, what are the rules? I'll just do what the rules say. And I, you don't think about it in those terms. Maybe that makes it less difficult. I don't know. But uh, I had a good time though. Yeah. I mean, if you lose track of how long you're spending playing it, I think in on a lot of levels it's a success, like if you're enjoying it. Yeah. And just to, so with three players, I think it took us about three and a half hours for a full game, plus about half an hour of um, a little bit of setup at the start and explaining the rules before we started. But I agree that next time we'd play it faster because we... Mm, much faster, yeah. I think. Yeah. And and the other thing I think we'd do next time is use more things. Like I think, mm. Liz, you were the main person who used items. Ben, you may have had one or two. I, I didn't have any couple. items. Um, I had a couple of scrolls, which are like the small spells that you can cast. Um, mm. But we we really, I think, underused those cards. Mm. Um I th- for me, that was partly because, you know, I start, I had a character who granted me a scroll at the start of the game. I Cohen the Barbarian. I had some pretty impressive characters right <laughs> at the start, actually. I had Cohen and, and somebody else who was very strong. Uh, but I got a scroll and it was useless because it was like, uh, at that point of the game, because it was a, a scroll that only applied to troll characters mm. and I didn't have any. So I was like, Oh, maybe all the scrolls are quite specific. I won't spend too much effort getting those. And I think because you don't know what's in there until you've, had a look and you know what they do. Um, it does have a tips section in the back and it says, you know, get items and scrolls, they'll help you out. And I think one of the things that helps with that is that it's not random. Like when you get a character who gives you a free scroll, you take one at random. But if you go to a temple or you go to a merchant, you get to look through their pile of the cards. Their wares. Their wares. And mm. you can just buy as many as you can afford. And I, I quite liked that. It felt, you know, often in these games you get a very limited selection, but here it's like, no, whatever's here, if you can afford it, you can buy it. And I, I thought that was uh, kind of refreshing actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And then you just look at them. It was, yeah. I don't think I've played a game like that before. If you saved up a bunch of cash, you could totally go to the item shop and buy 16 items if you wanted. Well, you can't buy 16. There's only 10 in the pile, but yeah. <laughs> You know. well, I really underused my cash. You know, I had mm. very, very little cash at the start. I couldn't even pay that dollar to yeah. to get treated at the hospital. That's right. Um, but then by the end of the game, I had twenty two money, and I I sort of wasn't sure what to do with it. That mm. would push my case forward. The thing, the rule that I kept forgetting actually was that uh, when you recruit a new volunteer, a new member of your posse, you try to charm them. And if you fail to charm them, you can bribe them, or most of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I ever remembered that, oh, mm. I could bribe this person. But then we very rarely failed to charm anybody. Yeah. So well, I think it would have only charming come charming people. Yeah, that's true. Yes. <laughs> but also next time I played, I would, because I, I put a lot of my, when you had the chance to move up your stats, I would put a lot of it into charm because that was most useful early on because when you're trying to get people recruited but by the end you need the other two because that's the best way to win the final step so Mm. i think i'd try and balance that a bit more in a later game yeah i think it definitely produces i mean this is one of the things is that you know you want shut up and sit down who um, my favorite you know board game youtube channel they also do a podcast and they write reviews but they they kind of always keep coming back to 
the best game is when you finish playing it and you remember all the great things that happened and everyone had, you know, they had a laugh and you were going, I can't believe you did that. Or, uh, you know, um, and I myself, like when something, you know, bad happens to someone and then something glorious happens to somebody else in a board game, just by chance, I'm always like, that's board games. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of what it's about. Unless you're playing a very serious strategic game. Um, there's always that element of fun. And this one, I think, really pushes towards trying to make that kind of chaotic nonsense happen that will trigger those sorts of moments. And I think it, I think mostly it succeeds really well at that. Oh yeah. There's absolutely moments in this that I'm going to tell people who have never played this board game, who will never play this board game, who do not know what discord is. And I'll try and explain it to them because it's very funny to me (laughs) and they will not laugh and not enjoy the five minutes it takes for me to tell them about it, but I'm going to do it anyway because it was fun and it'll be fun for me. That's fair. I'm holding back on doing it right now, but it's fine. (laughs) So, so who do you think is the audience for this game then? That is a good question. Mm. I think, look, it feels to me like it is the family that, you know, would otherwise be sitting down to play, say, Monopoly. Cause I think it, I look, uh, like a lot of people who get into hobby board games, I do not like Monopoly. I think it's a terrible game. It's got a positive feedback loop that makes it very unfair. Uh, but I think one of the things that it does that makes it attractive is that kind of randomness. And good things happen to some people, bad things happen to other people. It's exciting and fun until, you know, you get a few turns in and then it's clearly, you know, someone's winning and there's no way to stop them. I think this takes some of those good parts of that kind of chaotic thing where some of the basics of the game are quite simple and generate that kind of feeling and mood. So I think it's, I think it's a good medium weight, not like it wouldn't be for serious hobby gamers, but I think not that we can't have good fun playing that, uh, playing it, but I think. It does suit a family really well. I mean, it, it's weird talking about what's its target market when it's been out of print for about six <laughs> years now or more, but um, maybe eight years actually. But yeah, I, I kind of feel like a family <laughs> who are into Discworld and or sort of getting into hobby games might enjoy this a lot. Yeah. Or want to try something a little bit deeper than those sort of entry level board games you can find in Kmart. I feel like the audience is me. I felt extremely catered <laughs> to. It wasn't so complicated that I wanted to curl onto a ball and roll away. Like it was, but you can also do some strategy, but also just enjoy it for the chaos of it as well. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't enjoy games where if you aren't constantly thinking about winning, you like, I don't want to be thinking like, if I don't win this, it's going to be like a whole thing. Cause the random elements of it, you're like, Oh, well, it's out of my hands to a degree, which is nice. Mm. Like obviously the strategy, but still I kind of like. Yeah. Being able to blame chaos. Yeah. I, I feel like it's, it's more at the Discworld fan end than at the board game fan end. But, you know, I, I confessed earlier that I, I've dipped in and out of the Discworld over the years, but I certainly haven't read all of the books and I felt like there was enough for me. You mm. know, it, it felt very true, I suppose, to the books. It felt very in line with my, limited knowledge of the books and it didn't feel like, you know, sometimes you'll play a game and it's like, well, no, I haven't read that particular book or I haven't studied that particular page of that book. It didn't feel like it went overboard with the law of the Discworld, but it was still very clearly kind of seated in the Discworld. Of course, the other books I haven't read are The Lord of the Rings, but I've spent years reading other high fantasy and, and playing D&D and things. So when the Peter Jackson movies came out, I felt like I was the right audience because I could sit there and enjoy them and kind of have an idea of what was going on without worrying about what had happened to my favourite character. Mm. 
Yeah, that's fair. I feel a little bit differently about the Discworld fan thing, but I think it's really about what, because there's so much Discworld and it changes. Mm. You know, we talk about this a lot. It, it does change tonally over time and the different themes emerge and it gets more or less serious while always being funny. And I think if you're a big fan, like if you really love the earlier books, then you will really love this. I think if you are a bit like, oh, the early books are a bit silly for me, I prefer, you know, like Nightwatch and Monstrous Regiment and Going Postal, like the ones where, yeah, there's still some silly stuff in it, but there's a bit more of a serious theme and a bit more of a meaty plot. I think you probably would enjoy some of the other Discworld games more Mm. uh, because while I had a great time playing this and, yes, there's goofy silliness and all the characters are coming out, if I imagine what the story of what we just did was, <laughs> I don't imagine that ever happening in a Terry Pratchett book, mm. you know, like just this nonsense of people like running. It, it, it feels like the Discord equivalent of a farce and it is good fun, but, you know, from a thematic story level, it doesn't quite work. Say in the way that, you know, we recently played, or most recently on the podcast, we played the Witches board game. Mm. Um, which is the other Martin Wallace one. And it was great. You know, it's a semi-cooperative game. There's a few conditions where everybody loses, but you're still kind of competing against each other. And it feels like you could turn that into the plot of a lost Tiffany Aching novel, you Mm. know, and it would make sense. Whereas this is, I mean, it would be a bit much for one novel because there's (laughs) so many characters that come out. Whereas this, I feel like, you know, there's not enough of a plot there to really make that make sense. Mm. Still had a great time. And again, you know, I had reservations when I read the rule book and then we've played it and I'm like, oh, no, this was actually, this was pretty good. <laughs> it's a yeah. keeper. Yeah. So good work. Good work, Leonard and David. You did a good job. Uh, is there anything else anyone wants to say? Any favorite bits we haven't covered or, or rules or moments from the game we want to discuss before we get on to a f- just a couple of the, the listener questions we haven't already addressed? All right, fine. I'll tell my very boring story of the thing that I really enjoyed, which is whether I got a card that when someone crosses a bridge, it like moves the bridge temporarily while they're on it. And Ben crossed a bridge like immediately after I got <laughs> this card. And I can't remember if you'd just given him his fire water or or you did after that, but if he rolled an eight, it would get him out of my thing, but your thing made him blow up, which made both things happen. Yeah. And that was just very satisfying. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I got it in less than five minutes. So yeah, yeah. that was I hope brief. you enjoyed that. I'm well, sorry. You, you already had the existing context of the rest of the podcast to scaffold <laughs> your story. <laughs> But that was hilarious. Even I, who was deeply (laughs) upset by the outcome of that, (laughs) thought it was hilarious. That was pretty good. Mm. Uh, I do. I will say that uh, one of the things that I um, will probably do is pop the special eight-sided die that I got from the Australian Discworld Convention, Mm. uh, which has a seven A instead of an eight and a little turtle icon of the uh, of the Australian Discworld Convention instead of a one. I think that's going to go in the box for this game (laughs) because it's the perfect thing to have it in. And the turtle makes um, rolling a one hurt a little bit less. Yeah, because you get to see a cute little turtle icon. Mm-hmm. That's true. It still hurts. Though. Yeah. Just a little oh, bit less. It does. And I think, look, I, I think, you know, if there was anything that I would change, I would look into ways that you could soften those blows because that sort of critical fail, critical hit kind of um, rule is fun. You know, in the same way that that kind of rule in Dungeons and Dragons makes it a little bit hard to take seriously because- at any time, you're rolling one dice, which means any result on the die is equally likely. It's equally likely you roll a one or a 20 or, you know, a 15. That means those numbers do come up relatively often. Mm. Uh, and when you're rolling an eight-sided dice much more often because there's only eight results. So one in eight times you roll the dice, you would expect to see a one or, or an eight. Unless um, you're at the tavern. 
Unless you're at the tavern. Um, well, we almost never rolled a one. Actually, yeah, every time someone went to the tavern, you successfully rolled an eight to an recruit eight. someone, so you got to recruit someone extra. Mm, I feel like we rolled well over a fair share of ones and eights during the <laughs> <Yeah>. game. <laughs> yeah, but, well, it always I think it always feels like that when they're made so significant. Mm. you know. And, again, you know, that's like in Dungeons & Dragons when every time there's a one or a 20-something, you know, ridiculously bad or good happens – you celebrate those moments, you remember them, they stand out, and that starts to make the game feel about those extreme moments instead of about the competent moments and the bits where you succeed but it's not crazy or where you fail but it's, like, nearly happened. Those become less significant, I think. And this has that same feel. So, again, I feel like Lennon and David clearly played a lot of Dungeons and & Dragons <laughs> and that really informed what they were doing here. But we fought three dragons and we had critical fails on two of them. That's true. <laughs> Those dragons are really tough to beat. <laughs> but they shouldn't have been. We like brought out all the burly like volunteers, and then they're like, "Ha ha, no dragon eats you all." Yeah, I, I will also listen if you know the answer to this. I mean, I'll go and Google it. But if you know how the sabotage rules are supposed to work when you are doing that <laughs> final spell run, please let us know. Mm. I I did not find it clear from the way the book was written. Uh, because normally, yeah, you, you've, your volunteers are making the run, so they don't actually appear on the board and move around. You just say, well, I'm going from here where I've covered the spell. My volunteers are heading back to my gate into the university. Um, and that means they're passing through these quadrants of the board. And if someone's got a saboteur in one of those quadrants, that gives them an opportunity to interfere with your spell run. Whereas when you're going back by yourself and you're walking there, it could be that the same rules apply, or it might be that you have to sabotage them when they're in, actually their pawn is in that quarter of the board, which probably mm, makes the most sense. Yeah. But I didn't find that in the rule book. So I'll have another look. And, and can you attack can them multiple times while they remain there or do you just get one crack at it? Like I assume you mm. get only one. Like that's kind of how it works. But maybe you can do it every turn, like one time every turn. I don't know. Maybe it's different now we know what you look like. Mm. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But I'd love to know because I feel like that would make the final bit just a little bit more yeah. eventful. Mm. Yeah. Because it wouldn't stop them, but it would slow them down perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Because you are required to have at least one volunteer when you're on that final run. And we were a bit like, why? What's the point of that? And I think maybe it's because if you're sabotaged, that always targets a volunteer. Mm. So you have to have one to be targeted. Otherwise, no mm. one can sabotage you. But then they don't help you do anything at the end anyway. So uh, it, the only thing it would prevent is if you ran out of volunteers, you'd have to go and get one in order to do the thing. So I think, yeah, I think that if there's anything I would really want to change, I would want to tweak the end of the game a little bit. Mm. It feels a little bit messy. Hard agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, look, I think I think that's most of the things we want to say about the game. We had a really great time playing yeah. it. Uh, we had a lot of, mm. I know we've talked about a lot of critical things, but Man, it was fun, though. Yeah, uh, it was. It was great. I wanted to play it again immediately, but I was like, well, we don't have another four hours. We've got to <laughs> no. record the episode <laughs> and is... we all have to go home. So we just had to play another time. And look, that is another thing that is an impact on it. As I think I said earlier, as a board game nerd, you learn to ignore the suggested playing time on the box because this says 120 minutes. We could do it in 120 minutes next time, I reckon. We could do it faster than, we could do it less than three and a half hours. Less than three and a half. You certainly, you'd double that for your first play often. Yeah, that's true. So. But I reckon, I reckon it'd still take you at least a couple of hours. I, I think there's still, there's a lot going on that you can't kind of get around. Mm. Um, so just getting around the board to the places you've got to get to. On the fake cards, you have no control over. Sometimes that just, there's a whole bunch of stuff you need to do. 
Yeah. And I, I reckon on our next turn, we might get started getting at each other a little bit earlier. There might be a few more <laughs> dragons summoned, a few more spells cast on one another. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but we did get a few listener questions, yeah. and I think we've addressed some of them already as we've gone through our thoughts about the game. But let's have a look at the ones that maybe we haven't addressed. All right. So Johnny Cakes by Reddit asked us if it's any good. So I feel like we've covered this one, and, and also like who it's for. So um, great question. That sort of formed the basis of our discussion. Here's one from Dark Malady via Reddit. What led to Discord being licensed into board games, but not say video games? Well, this, this is a trick question because it has been licensed into video games. Interestingly, about the same number of board games and video games. So there are five Discworld board games, official ones, and there are six Discworld video games. The video games mostly came out in the 1990s. The board games are mostly from the sort of 2010s. Thud was much earlier, but the other ones are all between 2011, 2015, I think. But we know from things that Rihanna Pratchett has said that you know, it is complicated around the licensing. Uh, I understand that one of the reasons there's been no reprint of this game is that the exclusive rights for the guards' characters or the characters from the watch books um, were attached to the rights for the television adaptation, the watch. So until those revert back to Narrativia, there can't be any more prints of this or any other games based on those characters. So there's a lot of complicated rights issues, but also they're just very picky about who gets to do what. And as David Brashaw says in his great interview with the traditional makey fret, Pratchett was the kind of guy who was like, yeah, I could have some big company offer me millions of pounds to make a board game, or I could let these two guys who are really passionate about it from mm-hmm. Ireland who've never published a board game in their life do it as long as they make a company in order to do it. Because that is, and you should listen to that interview if you haven't heard it, listener, we'll link to it in the episode notes, the story of how this game came to be and the effort that they went to over many, many years really shows how much of a labour of love it was. So quite a few of the questions are ones that we've answered already in the podcast, which I think means that they are very good questions because they're the things (laughs) that we want to talk about. So David Butler via Discord asked um, basically the rules, are they very confusing and was this one of the more complicated games you've played? And which we've answered to a degree. Um, I will say, yes, it is one of the more complicated games that I've played because (laughs) I don't play very many games. Um, well, I think it's interesting. That's an interesting question. Actually, I do yeah. want to address that for a second because, Melissa, I'm interested in your take on this because I feel like I've played more complex games with more rules and more systems that I have enjoyed but also felt a bit maybe maybe easier to pick up because of the way those systems interlocked with each other. And we sort of talked a bit about how many rules this has for the kind of weight it's clearly intended to be. But what do you think? Do you think it's it's too is it too complex, or does it just need a bit more of a of scaffolding and hand holding maybe for the player? My board game nerd word for this is fiddly. Yeah. I think it's a bit fiddly. There's just too many moving parts for what the game offers, and if they could have taken out one or two of those things, mm. I feel like it would have been much more streamlined. So it's it's definitely not not a complex game, right? You, mm. You're collecting collecting volunteers, you're moving around the board, you're you're collecting spells and sending them back to the the university. It the ideas aren't complex, but there are just maybe a few too many steps. To, mm. to do them. Yeah. And I did think of one thing where it kind of comes into it and we got the hang of it. But one of the things is that some of the spaces on the board, you can do whatever they let you do, even if you just pass through them as you move in. Mm. And some of them you have to stop on to do it. And I don't think it's not arbitrary which ones are which. It kind of makes sense based on how important they are. But because there's 
there's no visual distinction between them. Yeah. There's no common language about why one is passed through and one is stop on. That takes a little bit of getting used to and it becomes a thing you just learn because that's the way the game works rather than because it necessarily makes sense in the narrative. And I think there's a few things like that that are fiddly that you, you do get used to when you've played it. But I think if you hopefully maybe refine those a bit more and find a way to make it work a bit more intuitively. Yeah. yeah. The way that I remember the things you passed through or you stopped was you're either getting people or you're getting stuff, but that rule doesn't fully apply because like getting people, you have to stop and like talk to them. If you're getting stuff like from a market store, you can pass through or if you're passing through your guild, but then if you're getting the spell, you have to stop. So that's like getting stuff, but is it stuff or is it something else? Mm. So it's like a rule of thumb, but if your thumb was like moving very, like was very blurry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty good though. I'm going to remember mm. it that way now. So you have to stop and have a chat. But with the merchant, like, oh, I've, I've read it up online beforehand and I'm getting it, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and David's other question was, from what I read, you seem to be working against the other watch recruits. Is this true and does that seem weird to you considering the watch is supposed to be working together? So we have addressed this to a degree. It, it is a bit weird. Yeah, and I think Ben talked about the watch kind of and the role of the watch being to suppress chaos a little bit in the and, – and here we were definitely fomenting chaos. Yeah. You're not really playing as a watch. I mean, as much as it's couched that way, you're really not playing a member of the City Watch. You're, you're playing like chaotic members of the guild who mm. want what they want. So I feel like it's maybe not the best named game. <laughs> it's not really a big part of the theme that the Watcher involves. Well, that's good. Maybe they can relicense it under a different Ooh. name. Though. Yeah. You, know, you could retheme this. Yeah. Just a tiny tweak. Mm. It could, well, it could be. Guilds, I mean, guilds. Yeah. Um, I'm saying it. Yeah. I mean, Ank Morpork ended up as Nancy Narking, so mm-hmm. anything could happen. And so our final question comes from Molokov via Discord. So I'm going to just ask one of these. Um, what's your favorite non-Discord board game and why do you like it? But I will clarify that Molokov asked quite a few questions that are great, but that we have also covered in the podcast already. Yeah, I think we kind of have. We did answer this, I think, in a couple of our previous board game episodes, but these answers change over time. So maybe mm. we can tackle this in a couple of ways. Like, is is there a current favorite board game that we each have? And if we were to recommend a game that you might play for people who, because this is quite hard to get to, we haven't really addressed this, but it's it's out of print. You can only get it secondhand because it's a Discworld thing and it's a little bit of a collector's item. You're probably paying at a minimum about $100 Australian up to $200 for a really good condition copy, depending where you can find one. Um, so it's not cheap to get a hold of and it's not easy to get a hold of. So if we were... So, so I'm sort of splitting this into two. If we have a favorite current game and if there's a game you really like that you would recommend to someone who wants to play this but can't get their hands on it. I'm panicking. Yeah. I always panic when I get asked this question, but I'm going to upside down it a bit okay. and say if there was a game that I was going to play that captures kind of some of the stuff that's going on in this game, Mm. I suspect it would be King of Tokyo by Richard Garfield. Good choice. King of Tokyo, you know, you're kind of, you're controlling giant mutant monsters that are moving (laughs) in on Tokyo and, you know, you're smacking other people's mutant monsters so that you move into first position. So it's that very streamlined, I suppose, version of some of the things that are going on here where there's a lot of take that, there's a lot of kind of I'll do this and I'll push you out and a lot of hilarity. It's it's a game that, you know, you, you've got to laugh while you play it. It's also much shorter, mm. right? I reckon it's 45 minutes to an hour probably for King of Tokyo. That's a really good choice, I think. 
yeah, the one that I've played and really enjoyed that I would pick, and I was just sneakily looking over at my board game collection because we're in my lounge room, <laughs> uh, would be Survive Escape from Atlantis. The base game, I think, is a lot simpler than this. It plays a lot shorter. So I think mm. if you want an equal amount of chaos or more approaching this amount of chaos, you would want to add in some of the little expansions. So this is a game where you're all on Atlantis and the board is made up of these tiles. And as things happen in the game, Atlantis slowly sinks and some of the tiles disappear and you have to get on boats and escape. And one of the nice things about it is that you have a collection of little people tokens and they have numbers on the bottom that are hidden from everybody. And that's how many points they're worth. Mm. And mm-hmm. you do have, and it's got this sort of semi cooperative thing where you're really, you're trying to win, but sometimes that means partnering up with another player briefly because you can get in a boat and other people can get in the same boat and try and get multiple people off the island. And if the boat gets capsized, it's all kinds of trouble. So there's quite a bit of chaos in it, but it's also really fun. It's quick. It's really great family game. Not too complicated, but it's got a lot of weird stuff happening. And if you add the expansions in, it adds like giant squids and dolphins. And (laughs) I think that's got a similar vibe to it. I would definitely recommend that if you want to play something a bit like this. But again, it would be much shorter. I can't think of anything that's quite this chaotic, which would take as long (laughs) to play. (laughs) Which is possibly a good thing. Yeah, except maybe Talisman, which I do feel has a similar kind of vibe, but Mm. I really don't like it. Because this, I think that the one other thing I would say about this is it's probably a little bit too on the luck side for me. Like there's not enough at certain points of the game you can do to influence your chances of winning. And I like a good balance of luck and skill. I think this is a little too on the luck side for me, but only a little bit. Like I still had a really good time. Whereas I think Talisman's way too much on the luck side. Like every turn you're rolling to see how far you can move and that basically gives you a choice between two squares you can land on and sometimes <laughs> both squares suck. So <laughs> that would be my recommendation, Escape from Atlantis. I think I mentioned Castles of Mad King Ludwig too many times, so I will say maybe Cthulhu Lovecraft Pandemic, which is collaborative, but depending on who you are, you've got different moves that affect how you – so you can play a different game each time – depending on who you start off as, and I, I quite enjoyed that. The other thing I enjoyed about that was I played that at a board game cafe in New Zealand, and again, as a casual player, if I picked up that instruction book and was like, let's play that, I'd give up immediately because it's too long and complicated. Um, I was lucky enough to have Ben guide us through this, having read it already, but that one I was able to pick up quite easily and also show other people so that you don't spend so much time learning how to play it so you can sort of almost jump straight into it without too much prep. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good one if we're looking at it like a family game or an easy social game. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And do we have any just faves? Like it doesn't have to be an absolute favourite, but anything you were just really enjoying that you'd like to recommend at the moment? Castles of Macking Ludwig. <laughs> <laughs> you are very consistent with that yeah. one. Yeah. I think that's entirely appropriate. Yeah. I played a game recently that I hadn't played for years and I played it in a different edition. So I played the Game Right game Big Top, which is also published as Barnyard Critters, Barnyard Buddies. In German, it's called Solche Strolche. And it's a children's game or family game. We have 25 cards with animals on them, 25 cards with groups of animals on them. And there are five animals in the game. So in barnyard critters, for example, you've got cows, horses, dogs, cats, and pigs. Mm -hmm. And you've got five colours, blue, red, green, yellow, purple. And you spread out your 25 cards on the table and then you flip over one of the cards that has four animals on it and it's got maybe a green pig and a yellow horse and a blue dog and a red cat and 
you've got to kind of go, oh, the purple cow's missing and grab the purple cow. And it's completely kind of unlike most games that I have played. It's very fast. It's very silly. It's a great kind of family weight game, but my adult daughter and I played it together and, mm. and could not stop laughing. Like it's so silly when you're grabbing, you know, and, and you're both grabbing the wrong things and, and, um, yeah, very, very fun. Um, otherwise I would recommend King Domino as another really great kind of family weight game, but that also, you know, I played, played recently with a group of people, some of whom are really into board games, but it's got a nice flow to it. It plays very quickly. And it's one of those games where you finish it and you say, well, let's just have another round. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I've been playing a few new games that I've really enjoyed. One is Daybreak, which I think I mentioned in our last board game episode. Uh, it's the new game from Matt Leacock who designed Pandemic. It's another collaborative game, but it's one is about global superpowers trying to collaborate to fight climate change. Yeah. It's quite a hopeful game. It's maybe not as difficult as Pandemic in some ways, but it's also very cleverly designed to emulate the challenges of fighting climate change. And it's also been made in as sustainable a way as possible. So there was no plastic used in the production of it at all. It's all made out of sort of uh, soluble inks and recyclable or compostable components. So, yeah. And the other one I've been really enjoying is a solo game, Paperback Adventures, where you are a writer trying to write a trilogy of pulp adventure novels. And if you've ever played the video game Slay the Spire, it's often compared to that because it is a deck building game. So you start with a basic deck of cards and then as the game progresses, you replace some of them or add some more cards to the deck and you use those cards to generate points of attack and defense in order to battle these boss monsters over several rounds. But the twist in it is that the cards are all letters. So to play a set of cards to get those points, you have to form a word out of the letters in your uh-huh. hand. Um, and it's really quite delightful. Uh, it's a little bit of a confusing one if you're buying it. You have to buy the base box, which you can't play the game with. You have to buy the base box and at least one of the three different characters. Mm. So a mm. um, bit of a controversial choice, which some people don't like. They're not too expensive. So if you buy one character in the base box, it's about I don't know, 60 to $80. And certainly if you're looking for a really good single player experience, I think it's worth that much. Yeah. And I'm really enjoying it. I, I've ended up getting all three characters. I've played all three of them and I have not won it yet, but <laughs> I've gotten close. So I'm raring to go back and give it another go, uh, which I think brings us to the end of our discussion of Guards Guards, a Discworld board game. Melissa, thank you so much for coming along again. Such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me and thank you for playing games with me too. Is there anything you'd like to spruik to our audience? Maybe is there, because you, you're a board game researcher, among other things. Do you have any interesting research that we might look out for? Any I, papers you've published? Any games you've created? So I've got two really cool projects actually on the go this year, both of them funded by the Australian Research Council. Um, one of them is a three-year project looking at hybrid board games, so or what I'm calling hybrid digital board games, so um, board games that have an element that's played on a phone or on a computer or that uses tech in some other way. And I'm going to be doing some traveling later this year, heading over to Europe, visiting some game museums, looking at some of the older games as well, because those games have been around for much longer than people tend to think. Mm, Interesting. Um, The other project that I'm going to be working on starting in about the middle of the year with some colleagues, again, a three-year project is looking 
at older adults and life storytelling. So the stories that older adults want to tell about their lives. Uh, but one of the things I'm going to be looking at is how we can make games with older adults to share the stories of their lives, both with, with other people, with other adults and, you know, with their families as well. So, you know, maybe not quite so hilarious as the Discworld game, although you never know. Some people <laughs> have had some pretty eventful lives. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to working on those projects. That sounds amazing. And if people want to find out more about your projects or your research, is there somewhere online they can go to find out more about that? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website at hybridgameresearch.net or they can also go to the University of Melbourne's website and search for me, Melissa Rogerson. Amazing. And I recommend that you do so. You might even find, I don't know if I can plug this here, you might even find a little project we did together. Yeah, yeah, soon I hope. Although we haven't written that up yet, so <laughs> we'll, I won't say too much about that. But, yes, that was a lot of fun. That was very exciting. But look, that's it. That brings us to the end. Thank you to those of you who sent in questions. Um, I'm sorry that we discussed so many of them in the main body of our, <laughs> our discussion, but hopefully you got your answer anyway. Which means though. they were great questions. Yeah, they mm. were. They were. They were very on point. And, look, thank you too for supporting the show. I don't say this explicitly enough, but it really is, true that without those of you who subscribe to the show and provide money to us every month, we would not still be making this show, you know, more than six years after we started. We're into our, is it our seventh year? I think it's our seventh year. I've lost track. I reckon it might be the, our eighth the, year. It's the start of our, I think it's the start of our seventh year. We started in late 2017. So I guess that means this is our seventh, mm. the start of our seventh year. We're doing it for more than six years anyway, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, and we set a six-ish year mission, yeah. but I reckon we've still got a bit more than a year to go. There's still two more board games we haven't done, yeah. uh, three if we include the Good Omens one. There's the all movies. the video games and movies and uh, there's lots of stuff we haven't done yet. Yeah. So, How long's an ish? So Yeah, exactly. An ish could mean anything, but we wouldn't still be here if it wasn't for your support. So thank you so much to all of our subscribers. And if you would like to support the show and help us keep going until we have covered absolutely every book and short story and board game and postage stamp and fridge magnet, I don't know, whatever else there is that's worth talking about, we won't talk about everything, then please do consider doing that. You can find out more at the support us page on our website, which is pratchatpodcast.com. And if you'd like to support the show and you're not in a position to do it monetarily, the best ways you can do that are tell your friends who might enjoy the show about us, share links to the show on social media. We're on most of the social media networks but not threads i refuse to go on threads <laughs> and uh <laughs> um and i will never call it x it's twitter if you share news of the show that really helps us find new subscribers and new listeners um and that really does help us you can also rate us or review us on the platform that you use it does help people know that the show is worth listening to so please do that if you feel like doing it in fact uh, i will say it would be lovely to get some new reviews because we've had some really nice ones but it's been about a year or two since the last ones we've had um so it's always nice to have some more current ones and we also like hearing what you have to say about it. And if you're listening on Spotify, we do have a little question that pops up with every episode saying, what do you think about this episode? Please feel free to put some comments in there. We'd love to hear from you. And, of course, you can always just contact us and let us know either on social media or via email at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. And those same channels are the ways you can send us questions about future episodes like our next episode, Liz, when we will be for the first time in what feels like a little while, <laughs> reading a Discworld novel. What are those? Um, I've heard of them. I think there's, I think there's a few left we haven't done. 
Yeah. Um, and this will be Pratchett 75, is that correct? Pratchett 76 is 76? the next one. This is Pratchett oh, 75. The quarter quell. Sorry, I've been <laughs> reading a lot of Hunger Games. I just recently rewatched one of those, and yeah. so now I'm on board. Yeah. I remember. They're good. Um, but next one will be Monstrous Regiment. Very exciting. Highly anticipated. One, a lot of people's favorite books. So if you've got questions about Monstrous Regiment, please send it in. That episode will be coming out on the 8th of March, and we'll probably be recording it towards the end of February. So make sure you get your questions in by then. And you can use the hashtag Pratchett76 on social media, or again, you can email us at chat at pratchettpodcast.com. Uh, but that's it. Thanks again for listening. Uh, there's really no point, as I always like to say, in us doing this unless you are out there listening. So thank you for listening. And until next time, please stay away from the luggage and don't summon a dragon. It's more <laughs> trouble than it's worth. <laughs> You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchetters Elizabeth Flux and Ben McKenzie. That's me. And guest Dr. Melissa Rogerson. Pratchett is produced and edited by me on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. Our music is by David Ashton. You can find us on social media as Pratchett or Pratchett Podcast, and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat 75. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.